Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib hosting the show once again. Shanghai finals in the books. Uh, and we have a special guest. Not to just talk Shanghai, but to talk a lot of things that have happened on the men's tour in the last two decades. And uh, the guest today is Koja Higaris. You know the name very well. He's uh, the player development. Uh, he runs the player development program for the USTA. In the past, he's coached who's who of tennis from Pete Sampras to Michael Chang to Roger Federer to Guillermo Correa. So the names are endless. On that note, let me bring him in. Welcome to the show, Jose. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sakit. No, this is really nice of the, you to come on the show. I know you are traveling, and I've been kind of teasing you since you met at the U.S. Open. Uh, so let me just start the question. You yourself come from Spain with a very rich tennis history. You know, a little bit of research of Jose Higueras, the player. You read the Roland Garros semifinal twice in 82 and 83. And, uh, and you have 16 career tour titles. So this is something I ask everyone. How has the sport changed, in your opinion, the rackets you guys were using when you were batting those guys in the early 80s or late 70s to what's tennis being played now? What are some of the things that uh, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable, but, you know, but I don't know the game like you do. So what are some of the things that a normal person doesn't catch at this level? Uh, you know, what has changed according to you? Well, obviously, uh, I retired in 1986, and uh, in those days, uh, I played for two or three years at the end of my career with uh, something besides a wooden racket. So I would say that the equipment has been uh, has been a huge uh, change in, in how the game is played today. Uh, together, rackets together with strings. I, I almost think that strings um, has played even a, a most important role in how in how we play tennis these days. Uh, together with uh, together with the death, you know, the, the death of, of the game is is uh, is so much better than it was. Um, I mean, on, on, on my day, um, if you were a good player, you normally, you know, if you play a slam, uh, the first couple of rounds, first two three rounds, were pretty were pretty much uh, almost a sure win wins. And now, the way the death is, um, you know, if you're not ready to play and play to a pretty decent standard, even if you're the best, uh, you, you know, you can be out the first day. So. I think those three things are probably the biggest changes that I've seen. Yeah, a lot of times in this uh, era we live in, it's more about the slams, like you said. So, how is the clay game? Uh, is this more about the footwork? Is it more about the strings now? Because uh, everybody talks about Borg and some of the excellent clay coaches that came after him, even Belander, Lendl, and some of the Argentines and Spaniards like Roguera. Of course, let's not give Nadal, but uh, how has clay game changed if you take Nadal out of the context? Is it still baseline? Is it still positioning? Is it the racket? What is what are the elements that stand out on clay? Well, uh, again, because of the uh, because of the uh, speed of the of the game, the game basically has been the the, the speed of the game has been pretty standardized, meaning that uh, <clears throat> in the old days the, the difference between a grass court and a hard court and clay uh, speed wise was a lot bigger than now. Uh, as, as we all know, the grass in Wimbledon is a lot slower. The balls are slower. Uh, the, the balls in the Langaros or, or on the Cape uh, Autonomous are a lot faster, so the, so the speed has been equalized. Uh, what I have seen a little bit, and uh, maybe not a lot, I, I think one of the things that we don't see as much, even if we do see uh, some of it, is the, uh, is the variety on, on clinical tennis um, because of the speed of the game and because of the equipment. So before you may, may, may see some guys, uh, you mentioned a couple of them, like... Uh, 
like Tommy Robredo, some of the uh, older players play a little more stylish record tennis, um, meaning with a with a change of change of height, you know, drop shots and defending the uh, the uh, you know drop shots and so on and so on. So the variety was a little uh, it will happen a little bit more often. Um, in, in today's game, once again, people hit the ball. Um, everybody hit the ball big. Uh, ball comes really fast with the pretty tough uh, spins. So that kind of limits a little bit the creativity uh, of, of the players when, when uh, you know, when playing. So uh, I would think that uh, that's a little bit of difference. Obviously, uh, before, um, once again, because of the equipment and the skill of the game, you still used to used to see some. Uh, some good seven balling, uh, you know, play court tennis, which is pretty much not existent now. Uh, so, so, so once again, the, the speed of the game, the equipment, um, and the standardized of the uh, of the uh, of the speed of the speed of the course, I think, uh, I think, has uh, limited a little bit the creativity on play court, which uh, with more time you are you are able to do it, to to be able to do it more often. Well, sure. Uh, I was just checking the record before uh, preparing for this uh, podcast. You played beyond board and you beat him first time in Madrid, and then he, you know, beat you the remaining of the 10 or 11 matches you played. Um, yes. Again, this is a very hypothetical question. Borg was using a wooden Donner racket, uh, very different times. But how would a Borg fare in today's play court world? I mean, uh, if you were given him these rackets, I know this is there's no definite answer to this, but clay is still clay, and if you give him the the equipment of today's world that's what Federer and Nadal are using, uh, how would someone like Borg measure up to these guys? How good an athlete was he? How was his footwork compared to what we see today? Well, uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, I was lucky enough to play Bjorn uh, when he was uh, very young. He was only 15 years old. That was the only time I beat him. Uh, I think he's a pretty underrated champion, to be honest. Um, I, I believe that any great champion like him will be will be very successful at any era because I think great champions is more about the uh, about your mind and competing than anything else. You learn a lot of the other things according to the situations. But uh, it's, to me, it's a pretty underrated champion because what he did, winning uh, five uh, French Opens and back-to-back winning Wimbledon, with such a difference in uh, in conditions. As I said before, when you play the French Open uh, in those days, it was extremely slow. Uh, one time uh, we played with triple balls, which, which are pretty much the pressurized balls. Uh, and then you go to Wimbledon, and it, it was a reason why people said on volley with passing second serves. And the reason was because the, uh, the quality of the ground wasn't, wasn't very good, uh, and, and it was so fast that you really had, had, had that much time to, uh, to play. So when you consider ball winning the French Open and then going to Wimbledon and winning five years back-to-back, uh, to me, that's an unbelievable uh, thing that 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 has been done in, in the uh, in the world of tennis. Uh, in terms of him, uh, how will he do in today's world? There is no question in my mind that he will be a great champion. Uh, it's impossible to say if he will be better or worse than, than some of the uh, players, especially especially uh, Nadal. Um, but but once again, he uh, him and Nadal are the two best minds I've ever seen on a tennis court. With difference in terms of playing one point at a time and making every point count. Uh, so, so once again, I, I would I would love to see uh, a little bit more talk about uh, th- those five back-to-back wins uh, with such a different uh, conditions. And especially if you look at Borg when he won when he won his first um, 
his first uh, Wimbledon um, with, ab- with absolutely uh, with, with plans on the back uh, with those conditions. And then you see him when he won his last Wimbledon or lost to, to McEnroe on his last uh, last any of the finals. Uh, you, you could see uh, within with, within himself the difference on his on his game. He started to serve in on volley more, which he, for him was totally against his his nature. So once again, in today's game, I think he would uh, uh, evolve and will take advantage of the uh, of, of the uh, of, of the equipment. And there is no doubt in my mind that he would be a great great player all around. No, that's very well said. And even uh, now, let's stick to the Spanish players of your generation and even your career. Wimbledon, even as late as the late 90s, saw a lot of European players and Spanish players protesting because of the ranking and the grass was not as good as it is now. So what was your expectation as a player and uh, even some of your compatriots? How did you approach Wimbledon? It was a very different surface to what you have grown up in Spain. Uh, talk about that challenge and the quick season ended how most of you viewed playing on the grass. Yes, in, in, in those days, it, it was almost like uh, like two different surfaces, uh, like two different tools, really. You have uh, you have a lot more clay uh, uh, core specialists or slow uh, core specialists and, and fast core uh, specialists or, or grass or, or hard core. So, so you could see that, that those uh, specialists didn't do very well in the other surface. Once again, the difference in surfaces was, uh, was a lot bigger than it is now. Uh, so, from my, from my perspective, for example, as a player, I missed Wimbledon quite a few times. Why? Because the, the ranking system was different than it is now. It was an average system. So, so, you, so every match that you play uh, really counted for your average. So, for me to have a chance of, of qualifying for the Masters, uh, I had to choose my my tournaments, my schedule, put it, put it well, uh, because it, 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 it's not like it, like like it is now that you can play as many tournaments as, as you want. It doesn't really penalize you for losing. In those days, um, in those days, if you lose first round, that will go once again against your average. So, so I did that. A lot of the clay callers do that. A lot of the fast score uh, uh, players did that, and and that was just what it was in those days. So, but but do once again uh, to the due to the fact that uh, that the difference in uh, in, in speeds uh, was so was so big. Um, so uh, once again, I I, I missed Wimbledon a few times. Um, um, I can guarantee you that a lot of players from my caliber or higher missed the French Open a few times, and that was just the way it was in those days. So that's the way we approach it. If you if you were a good player um, uh, in one surface, in order to to have a chance to uh, get into the top ten or uh, or, or qualify for the Masters, you have to uh, choose your schedule pretty pretty carefully. Now, would you have liked to play on the Wimbledon grass that exists today? Because a lot of, uh, most of the action happens on the baseline. Yes. Well, once again, the, the, the bounces are so true. It's somewhat like playing on a hardcore uh, with, the, with, uh, with the bounces a little lower. As I said before, there's always a reason why people do what they do in, in sports. I and mean, in tennis, uh, people used to serve on volume grass because it was, it was a winning, winning situation. Um, and, and, uh, and now... Uh, with the equipment the way it is, uh, the depth, the athletes, um, since the, the, the bounce is pretty, is pretty honest or very honest most of the time or a very high percentage of the time, that gives everybody a chance to actually play a little bit more of their style. Uh, if you ask me personally, I would actually see a little more um, difference in speed because I think you will see a little more difference in styles too. Um, 
you know, I believe that uh, I believe I was a, a, a Tlaco player. I was a counter puncher basically. Uh, through as I get older and moved to the U.S., uh, I understood the, the off, offensive tennis a lot better. So by the end of my, in my career, I was actually venturing to the net a lot more often and understand that part of the game better. Uh, so, so I think if we if the contrast was a little bigger, uh, you will you will have a little more um, more people, uh, you know, going to seven volley or actually venture more to that because basically, uh, to go to the net uh, in today's world, you have to go with a with a with a pretty aggressive shot. Um, the players can change direction uh, pretty much from anywhere, so you gotta go to the net with with, a, with more advantage, even though. It's still a, uh, a a form of pressure, but uh, yes, by being there, it's not enough like it was before because of the equipment. Now you gotta be there and, and be and, and have an advantage on, on the point. I think very interesting points you made. I'll come back to that as part of what you're doing with the USK. But I have a few more questions uh, for the ATs. Part of my research, I was doing your head-to-head, and then I came across a very uh, interesting match that you played against John McIndoe at Counter 16 in Roland Garros in 84. That's one of McIndoe's. That's one of the most, that's one of the most uh, dominant years ever. So how yeah. was McIndoe and played that year? And what do you remember of that match? I mean, as a seven ball year, he almost won the title match. I mean, McIndoe for me was a genius. Uh, he's, I will put him, uh, with the players that I play against anyway, I will put him in, in, in the top top two or three in terms of how how you play tennis and, and, and the vision on his uh, the, the vision that he has for the game how uh, how how far ahead he saw everything with uh, with fantastic hands you almost felt that um, that he was a step or, or two ahead of you all the time uh, because of because of the way he uh, his timing and the way he he, he felt the game so. Uh, I mean, from my perspective, when uh, when I when I lost to I played John also on indoors uh, in Antwerp uh, before that, and uh, and he beat me pretty easy. Uh, I, I I thought I had absolutely no answer because everything was coming like like I said, it was one or two steps ahead of me, uh, and I had I had no no time to to really react. When I played him at the French, uh, I, I thought I thought I played a good match. Um, but I had a little more time, so so I had a little more time to uh, to set up and a little more time to make him feel a little more uncomfortable and not not getting away with yes his trenches at the net, and uh, and that pressure became a little a little not, not as as difficult for me. Uh, when when I went home when I went home I was watching the final, and I thought, well that's interesting. I'll, I'll be the only player that uh, has gotten a set out of John in, in, at the French Open <laughs> until until the match turned around. And uh, and actually, I saw John uh, three weeks later on an exhibition in Mexico, and I asked him what what he thought it happened, and he kind of told me something which I didn't really thought it was. So I, I told him, I said, "Well, I thought you kind of you kind of lost your leg somehow." And and the way he played tennis, uh, the way he played, and especially on play against Lendl, uh, I thought he became just a hair a hair loss of a half step, and that's all it took. Mm. But he was a fantastic player. Uh, agreed. I just wanted to hear from your opinion. Uh, now you said you were you were a counter puncher, and then you know McIndoe was a serving volleyer. So let's travel to today's time when uh, most of the tennis is played from a baseline, and styles are very similar. And now this young Greek player, Stefanos Tsitsipas, is having success because he's one of the few guys who knows how to do the transition game, also approach the net. So. As a servant warrior like yourself who grew up in the 60s and sorry 70s, 
uh, you think that was a bigger challenge to play serve and volleys or baseliners? What presents the most challenge for your style of play? In, in, in my in my time, you mean? In your time, and then I'll bring in the next part of the question. Yeah, in your time, what was the bigger challenge for you to play a serve and volley like McIndoe or a powerful baseliner like Lendo? I mean, for I mean, for me, for me, uh, playing seven volleys wasn't really uh, uh, is not something that I fear. What I fear the most was the speed of the court. Uh, if the speed of the court was fair, and actually I, I did well, I did well on hard courts and I did well on, on indoors. Uh, but uh, what I feared the most was the speed of the court. If I didn't really have had time to uh, enough times enough times to actually uh, to actually change direction, that, that was my, my biggest thing. Uh, at the same time, there were two different matches. If I play a player of my characteristics, uh, it was a much more physical match. It was a, a bit more patient, more selective, and uh, and more resilient. Uh, with a with a with a seven volley or, or a more aggressive player, it was um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, as physical. And, uh, and basically, all I need to do is take care of myself and then and then uh, wait for for chances to break. But uh, but it depended for me, it was more than anything the surface, the speed of the surface that the style of play. Okay. So again, the second part of this question is uh, more than I've asked uh, Tim Mayotte, who came to the podcast. So why do you think the Tsitsipas, who is the guy coming to the net in the newer generation more than most uh, of the new generation players? Do you think uh, this kind of style is so foreign now that players struggle when someone comes to the net, even though? Uh, it's very easy to pass with the racket and the string technology and the surfaces, but anyone who's choosing to play some intelligent attacking tennis is being rewarded. So, uh, is there not enough coaching to tackle this style because not many people are coming to the net? Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, I, I think there are a few things. Uh, I think the first thing will be that there is so much pressure in, in today's young kids at young ages. Uh, that uh, winning that winning becomes so important so early unnecessarily in my opinion and uh, in order to understand or or master any skill uh, it takes time and it takes a lot of failing and uh, unless you go through that process uh, you will never be a good volleyer you gotta go to the net enough times through that process where you get passed where you miss volleys and and that is part of the experience of understanding the net play. Understanding that uh, you don't you don't volley every time you go to the net either because sometimes the other player misses the passing shot. So so to answer your question with uh, with Stefanos, uh, I mean uh, I've seen I'm watching play now for a few years and um, and he's been doing that for a long time. So he has uh, he's been having his share of uh, of repetitions which uh, which 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 makes him uh, which makes the skill get better and better. Make, make his confidence um, be bigger and, and his understanding on how on how to cover the net better. So it's about um, once again to me the main thing is that that uh, everybody asks so much from the young kids at young ages that sometimes they don't have time to actually experience enough and uh, and, and fail enough in different aspects of the game to to be to become decently as, as successful uh, at any part of the court. That that would be my my. That, to me, that would be the, the biggest reason because I think that I think there's a lot of good coaches that uh, understand the net well, and uh, and and um, but anyway, that, that would be my thought. No, that's very well said. So let me just bring in uh, the USP, and then we can get to Chang and Feder a little later, uh, the people you coach. So in USP, uh, uh, you've been part of the player uh, development. So your appointment, you know, is now almost like a decade long. 
what was your uh, blueprint? What what did you bring to uh, again, not exactly in every detail, but uh, did you think there's some structural thing that needed to change in the men's tennis, how or, or even USC tennis, including women's tennis, how the youngsters were approaching? Was there a clear influence you wanted to bring? Was it a footwork change? What were the changes that you know uh, Jose Higuera has brought to the USTA? Well, well, it wouldn't be fair to say that, that I did it by myself because obviously, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, Patrick McEnroe and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, really good professionals that, that we did together. But uh, but basically, I did that full time for about eight years. I haven't done that for the last three years. So in those in those when, I, when we started, basically, uh, everybody we had good coaches around the country, but everybody was kind of going their own the wrong way. It wasn't really uh, much of a, of a systematic, in a way, um, uh, way of doing things, uh, meaning, uh, you know, we have a common language. The, uh, the relationship with the private sector was terrible. Everybody hated everybody. So so when we started, uh, we put together a little uh, document, uh, a coaching and teaching philosophy, which is, was very, very simple. Um, and uh, and we went to the country. I mean, I, I, I got my... Uh, my uh, the highest status of my miles you can have during those years. We went to every part of the, of the country, uh, talked to thousands and thousands of coaches, uh, letting them know that it was this was a team effort that, that included everybody. And if you ask me what is what is my biggest, the thing that I'm most proud of, it will probably be that uh, the fact that we got the tennis the tennis uh, community uh, together. Um, the relationship with the private sector is great now. And there's a lot more communication and so on and so on. Uh, together with that, I, I thought we were a little bit behind in terms of how we taught our kids. So, so we we took a few trips to um, to Europe. You know, went to Spain with our young with our young boys and our young girls. You know, the likes of uh, of uh, Radio Felca and Tommy Paul and and, and Taylor Fritz and uh, a lot of those boys. Uh, we took them there before the French Open for a month. Uh, so, main thing was for our coaches also. So you started to widen our, our, our view on how the, the game was playing um, in the world. And uh, once again, uh, that could have been done with, uh, with everybody else. And, 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 and to me, that, that, that's the thing that, that, that I was more, more grateful for. Yeah, I mean, those are some uh, interesting uh, points you made. Also, the good names like Tommy Paul has been pretty impressive. So let me just elaborate on that, Jose. So, of course, it uh, looks like, you know, there's more communication and, you know, there's bigger tennis network. At the same time, is clay uh, part of an early tennis player's uh, education? Are American, uh, especially male players, are they being exposed to clay? Because a lot of these European guys who are dominating, or even someone like Del Potro from South, you know, Argentina, South American, they all have their uh, education from tennis, like yourself, on clay. And uh, they have made a seamless transition to hard and grass and indoors. But American style, uh, since Andy Roddick left, has been still the big serve in forehand, and uh, they just get exposed in the baseline. So to overcome that, has there been uh, has clay being introduced at a very young age? Is, is, was that part of the plan? Yes, as I said before, uh, when we started that, if you look at, at those boys, you look at Riley, you look at Tommy Paul, uh, Taylor Fritz, and Francis Pierre-Paul, uh, all those boys. Um, when they got to the finals of the French and the finals in champions, uh, so so that was a big that was a big uh, part of our, of our, of, our, of a big idea was to actually introduce those kids not one week or two weeks a year 
but uh, a significant amount of time at, at young ages, which is what you learn the most. So, so um, not only did we uh, uh, send them to uh, to play to play on, in Europe for for a month or more than that, but also there was another trip to South America. And besides that, a lot of the practices uh, that we that we did were on clay also. So, so that was a that was a a, a pretty conscious effort from our from our perspective to to actually to actually get the uh, the ideas and also the base, which once again the way the game is played. Um, you, you gotta have a good base on the back, uh, unless you have a huge, huge serve and, and don't let people play. Okay, so my next question could be very immature, but I'm gonna present it. The, the U.S. Men's Championship in Houston uh, on TV. I've never been to the tournament yet. It looks like a very different bouncing clay, and if uh, it is, then why doesn't I know it's a ATP tournament? Why don't USTA get involved and maybe provide the same clay that's being played in Europe that will give players you know, one less week uh, to, to travel or one more week at home. Uh, and are there possibilities of introducing maybe one more uh, play event leading up to the French Open or even a challenger event somewhere in the U.S. where red clay is uh, the preferred surface, not the green hard to play? Yeah, well, I mean, if I, if I was in charge and I was, uh, you know, and I could do anything I wanted to, that, that would be a requirement that I would do. That I will put to have a, to have the national play or championships, um, and together with that we have quite a few uh, challenges on play, but it's a, it's a different play as you said. Um, and, and actually, I think you can still get get the basics on on, on on different on different plays. But as you said, ideally ideally you wanna you wanna you wanna compete and you wanna practice on, on the surface that uh, that you're gonna play in the on the bigger stage on play court in the world. So, so I, I will agree with you, uh, but I'm not in charge of that, so I don't have any solutions. Hmm. A bunch of Americans, uh, you know, after Tony Trevor, there was a big drought. Uh, McEnroe reached the final, but a bunch of Americans won Roland Garros after uh, Courier, Chang, Agassi. So, what was different in their tennis foundation? Of course, you know, Nadal's the big answer that nobody else won French Open, but if there was no Nadal, it's fair to say most American players won't get past David Ferrer, Roger Federer. Uh, Novak Djokovic, all these guys would have been there. You know, it's just not at all. So, yes. what what is the difference between you know those guys winning and now these guys, uh, the post-Rodic generation, has been uh, I don't want to be harsh, but they have been you know found very limited on play. Uh, of course, Jared Donaldson and Francis Tiafoe are showing more intent, but overall, what what were the gaps in your opinion? Well, I will start one by one with, with Michael Chang, which I was uh, I was lucky to uh, to coach at one point. When he won the French Open, uh, he had all the ingredients to be a good psycho player, even even if he was uh, if he was born and raised in Southern California. I never played uh, clay before he was 17 years old or 16 years old. So so he had all the ingredients. He was very smart in play. Uh, he uh, he understood the, the differences well. He can up the court well. He he had a good good feel for the game. So so basically so basically we think was just about about giving some. Uh, you know some some ideas on how to use his speed a little a little better uh, when he play on play um, and, um, and and he was a natural to to play to to play on, play court tennis. I was actually I always thought after he won the French Open the first time that he would win at least another one. Um, with um, if we go the next if you go to Andre, I mean Andre was such a great player with such a great hands that even though he didn't play he didn't play your typical click or tennis, he was he was so good 
that he uh, that he actually won the French Open. Um, and then if you go and one guy that you forgot, uh, which is Jim Courier, that won two years and got to the finals uh, on his third year. Uh, Jim uh, grew up playing on um, uh, he grew up playing in Florida on 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 clay pretty much since he was a kid. So his foundation of the sliding, his foundation of his footing, his foundation of some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, change of height and, and some of the understanding it was there. Um, and when when I started working with him once again, uh, it wasn't it wasn't uh, like I had to just teach this kid put everything from scratch. He had a pretty good foundation because of his experience on on play course. Uh, I believe in today's world, if you want if you want to have a chance of winning the French Open, you got to be able to play enough on play to understand the surface and to be able to feel comfortable. Um, I'm moving and understanding the idiosyncrasies of uh, of flake or tennis like any other uh, like any other surface, and I feel that um, I feel that sometimes the, the, the players at young ages don't take the time, don't take the time to actually to actually uh, uh, get get that experience. And um, as I said before, uh, there is no progression without failing. You are failing enough to, to actually get better. And, and in today's world, everything is so uh, result-oriented. I think some some players kind of shy away from those situations. Uh, having said that, uh, our young guys uh, this year, for the first time in a long time, uh, they went to Europe for five weeks. You have uh, you have uh, you know Francis and Taylor, and, and all these kids. You know they actually went went and played the play position, um, uh, the whole thing. So that was very encouraging. But once again, I think they. The time needs to be put into the circuit unless you are 100% natural to be able to be successful at the French Open. Okay, so let's dwell a little bit on Chang. You were in the coaching box when you won the historic 89 uh, Roland Garros and you became the youngest man to win there, beating the likes of Lendl and Edberg. So I, I think I've read somewhere uh, you admitted that you know Chang uh, versus Lendl was a very so it's a mismatch for Chang, and Chang would have lost most matches, but he ended up doing it. So what clicked in that match? Of course, Rui talks about under and third, but something clicked in that match that Chen was able to do against Wendell under your watch. And uh, how do you prepare for that match uh, going back for 30 years in time now? <laughs> well, uh, I would be lying if I thought uh, if I thought that uh, Michael was going to be Lender. I, I actually, nobody thought he was going to be Lender because it was such a, a huge difference on, on, on everything. But uh, at the same time, I didn't know Michael either. Uh, and I would say that uh, Michael was a great competitor, great competitor, very very smart. And and if if, they, if, if, if it was any chance for him to win a match, he would more than likely win. And that's basically what happened. Uh, things kind of started to unfold in a way where where um, where Ivan, you know, kind of got a little a little a little a little nervous, and uh, and then he saw the opportunity. And and being as great competitor as as he was. Uh, when uh, when he was getting cramps, he didn't hesitate about serving a uh, seven hundred hand. Somebody else probably would have done something else and cramped all the way. I mean, that, that's he, he. Michael is one of those players that that when he during his career he got the best the best of his of his ability. And he once again was a, a tremendous competitor. And uh, and and when you play him, you were in for a match. And to me, that was the biggest, the biggest uh, factor in winning that match. It wasn't about his forehand or his backhand. It was his determination and his character that that actually, uh, once he saw the opportunity, didn't shy away and did whatever whatever it, it took. And in those in those moments, was serving on the hand and actually unnerved Ivan even more. 
um, to actually win the match. But um, I would be lying if I said that we had a great uh, game plan for that match in terms of what happened. Hmm. Now let's move into the last segment of this uh, uh, podcast. We'll talk about uh, other players you coach. So as a coach, what are some of the big things that excite you when you work with someone? Of course, now you've been with the USG for more than a decade. Do you look for someone who's very talented? Do you look for someone with a great work ethic? Uh, you want to coach the best players, or you want to maybe work with someone who's fundamentally, you know, not that good but has great potential. So, what are things that excited you as a coach when you took on a coaching job? What things you look for? Uh, I, it, it may surprise you, or I'm going to tell you, but uh, I actually like to coach any everybody. I mean, I, I like to coach anybody that uh, that has the desire of getting better. Because for me, it's just about about getting better. How how good can I get? Uh, and a lot of people are, are afraid of that. So, so for me, for me, what really excites me, excites me is, is uh, seeing a player that has the desire of do of doing whatever it takes to to be better. It doesn't matter if he's. I mean, I work with a lot of good players, but I've also worked with a lot of players that weren't as good. And I can I can assure you that I got the same pleasure because I, I never I never measure. I always measure my work with the players on on the players' uh, development. How much uh, if they got better or not. According to their to their abilities, if they if they got better, if the desire of the player was there, uh, I was always satisfied with the results. So so for me, the desire on the on the individual, the, the competitor in, in the individual, is really what is really what it matters in terms in terms in terms of me being excited about being on the court with somebody. And and when you work with top players, that desire is there, and uh, and it's pretty amazing how uh, how thirsty they are. Uh, Focus our information and our trying to get better, even even being as good as good as they are. So as long as as long as you have the desire, uh, then I'm I'm always happy to be on the call with anybody, a beginner or or a grand slam player. Okay, the note of desire and all that you said. Let's bring in Guillermo Coria. How long was your association with him? And of course, his career ended because of a shoulder injury. But in my opinion, he was someone who could have stayed with Rafa Nadal and played. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to beat him, but I think he they played a couple of great matches in Monte Carlo and Rome. That's when Nadal was just coming into his own. To talk about Korea and and what do you think of that partnership and how good he could have been on play? You know, Guillermo Guillermo uh, was a, a exceptionally a gifted player. As uh, you say, he was one of the few guys that actually will play will play with Rafa and, and actually beat him uh, here and there. So uh, I, I don't know exactly what happened. I I, I feel that that. Uh, after he lost that uh, final at the, uh, at the French Open against Gaudio, uh, something something happened to his mind, and then and then after that um, something happened with his serve, which he, where, where he has will go through matches over 14, 25 times a match, um, which is actually when um, after that that I had my uh, my relationship with him, and and my relationship with him was uh, was great. Uh, the reason that we parted ways. Um, it, it works because uh, normally the way I've always worked, I've always coached, is uh, I don't go with the players, um, you know, the full year. But to me, the most important time is actually the, the, the weeks off where you can actually work on things and, and, and get better. Uh, but I did travel X amount of time. So I never did it a full, full time with the players 52 weeks a year. So so he wanted me to do that, and I couldn't do it, as I told him from the beginning, so that's why we stopped. But to make a long story short, I had a great relationship with him. He was extremely talented. Uh, probably one of the uh, 
one of the black spots that I have that I still wake up uh, once in a long while uh, at night and think about not being able to actually uh, to actually help him with uh, with his search. Um, and it was really interesting because uh, we used to go when he uh, when he played after the, after his matches. We'll I'll get a I'll get a, a bucket of balls. We go and we hit uh, 40, 40 second serves, and uh, and on those forty second serves uh, he probably missed two or three out of forty. And then he goes the next day to the match, and the first three games seven he had ten double balls. And and so it was obviously something something that clicked. You know I don't know if it's compared to the to the yips in uh, in golf. I don't know much about golf, but I heard quite a bit about that too. But uh, but but it, and it was kind of it was sad for me to see to be honest uh, one of the uh, some of the worst times uh, sitting watching somebody play uh, it was with, with Guillermo because because uh, because I was I felt pretty uh, I felt ho- awful not, not not being able to uh, to actually find a way to help him with that so mm-hmm. but extremely talented player and a great player to watch interesting yeah yeah sad to see how his career ended again. Uh, yes, you know the social media wasn't at its peak like it is now. So I always remember yes. he had serving issues and then shoulder injury and then yes. he just slowly faded into retirement. So yeah, you know, it was the best. Absolutely, yeah. So before we bring Federer in, so is there anything you've learned from all these players you have coached? Because I'm sure they've learned a lot from you. It's a two-way relationship. What have you learned from the players you have coached? Because I think. Uh, uh, that's something I want to hear from someone like you because you work with yeah. some of the very best players. Anything that stands out? That you're well, from these you know, two things. The, the first thing is that they always they always want to learn more. They always want to get better. There is no one player of that caliber that I work with that I can say, no, these guys, you know, had enough with what he knew. Everybody, all those guys are, are, are thirsty for, for information. And the second and the second one is, is their desire. Their desire is, is, is limitless. They, they they will they will do whatever it takes to try to try to get an advantage. And those are the two things that I think are, are um, you, you, it's pretty tough to live with that when you when you play at that level and stay there for, for that long. So so together with that I will say that everybody is different. All the players are different. Um, all the players um, you know different buttons you push with different players to uh, to get to them. But uh, but those two ingredients, all all those players that we have been talking about, uh, they, they have. Mm. All right, so let's talk about Roger Federer because uh, anyone, a lot of people who would listen to this podcast would want to know what you know you think of that partnership. So you were on Federer's box uh, for quite some time. So what do you recall about uh, that partnership and uh, how it ended and was it successful according to you? Did you achieve what you guys set to achieve? How do you recall that partnership? Well, uh, I, I would start by saying by saying that I cannot have any better any better memories uh, from that relationship. Um, when Roger when when, uh, when when Roger called me, he was coming out of his uh, of a mononucleosis, so he wasn't in the best of uh, shares. His body was starting to recover. So anyway, uh, we started working together. Um, we we um, you know I was I was totally totally shocked uh, by how much he loves to play tennis. I was totally shocked by his character, uh, how how uh, how wonderful he is with, with people, not not with with everybody. So from a human standpoint, I, I was I was fully amazed to be honest. Uh, from a tennis standpoint, I was amazed also because he is he, one of the best, if not the best players, uh, in the pure sense of the way, in terms of how you 
I see tennis played I've ever seen. So and uh, so anyway, when uh, when w w the reason we stopped working together was because uh, was because uh, at the end of 19, uh, 2008, uh, I believe it was um, that when the USDA offered me that job, of Patrick Cummings, and, and and it took me like four or five months to actually accept that job. But uh, uh, I mean, you don't know my background, how I started playing tennis, but tennis has been very good to me. Um, I love tennis, and uh, and I thought uh, I thought it may be a way to actually give something back and try to do something for uh, for tennis in the U.S., which I've been living here for uh, for 39 years, and um, and it was something that, that that excited me, and that's and that's the reason. And besides that, Roger didn't really uh, want a full-time coach. I mean, I was working with him probably uh, between 12 and 15 weeks a year. Mm -hmm. So that was the that was the reason why we stopped our. Um, a relationship uh, uh, tennis-wise because to the day we are good friends. Uh, he's one of my heroes, and uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Okay, so again, not just Federer, like even Nadal. You know, a lot of people said you know he should bring a new voice, and finally you got Carlos Moya. So did you find like Federer, even Sampras, and you call these guys were they mentally so strong that in a way they resisted changes? If you suggest something, because a lot of things work for Federer to get there. So was there a time in a partnership when you want to address something or add new element or add a change? Uh, was this champion mindset resisting it? Well, with uh, you know, when you, when you when you establish a relationship with a top player like that, uh, the first thing that you have to understand is that they know quite a bit. They may actually know more than you. I mean, you don't play at that level for that many for that many years without without being having a, a great tennis mind. So that's normally the first thing now. Um, having said that, I'm a big believer that you can always get better. Even even if you do things as well as Roger does, I believe, and he believes also, and I think most of those guys do. So so um, they are not going to do something just because you tell them. Uh, they're going to do something because you actually explain it to them and they understand it and they think it's good. Um, you know, Roger, for example, um, and, and also, there are different types of plays. I mean, Roger plays a lot by instinct. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's, he's got a tremendous amount of skill everywhere. So he's not a player that um, I think you can put on a box uh, to coach him. We just, there are some other players that you can structure a lot more. So he 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 needs his freedom uh, to go out there and express the way he feels the game, which is a little different than a lot of other people. So, so you just kind of you kind of get to know the player, uh, get to know how how they function, but understanding that that they that they have tremendous amount of uh, of information, and uh, and you cannot just go there and change the world. Uh, at that level, uh, the, the, uh, a small detail can make a huge difference, and those are the, the, the small details that you're looking when you when you are at least from my perspective when you're working with a with a player of, of that level. Um, you're not gonna you're not gonna reinvent reinvent the uh, you know the wheel with them. How's the Roger Federer practice session like? I know in tournaments we've seen him. He has a very light head. Of course, his game is uh, very different than others. So it looks like he's just putting in 20, 30 minute hit. But what is the Roger Federer training block like? What do you remember? How intense can it get? Because we know in the Dallas practice session are very intense. Yes, I mean they are two different players, obviously Rafa and, and, and Roger. Uh, but don't get fooled. You don't get to be that good without working. And in uh, the times that I have been with Roger, uh, aside from the tournaments, um, 
I mean, the off-season that I went to Dubai a couple of times, uh, you know, we'll work uh, uh, from 10 to 1 uh, straight, and, uh, and, and condition, conditioning was after that. So, so um, obviously, at the tournament, once again, you cannot go on the tournament and, and, uh, and worry too much about, uh, about, you know, your technique and things like that. I mean, you go to the tournament and, and uh, you just want to make sure that, that your timing is, is right. And the way uh, Roger feels his timing uh, may be a lot different than, than Rafa feels his timing. Roger, if he hits a couple of good backhands and a couple of good forehands, maybe maybe the warm-up is, is over. And with Rafa, may have to hit uh, 40 forehands and 40 backhands for him to actually feel that. So, once again, different different players, but you you don't become that great without working your butt off. And, uh, and, and that's something that I've heard people, you know, Pete was a little bit the same also. Uh, Pete also, you see him at tournaments and stuff, and he just went and kind of went a little bit the same way. But but uh, but I know that he also worked his battle because you don't get to be that great without doing that. Hmm. When Federer and Roland Garros, you were not in the camp, but I'm sure you had worked the previous year uh, with him. So, of course, you were very happy to see him win that. But did you see yes. you know, some of the hard work you have done uh, come through because of the coach? You know, same thing happened with you mm-hmm. when you and Sampras parted ways, and three, four months later, he won his last U.S. Open. Yes. Uh, connection between two and two memories. Yeah, you, you know, for some reason, I, I have always had uh, uh, players call me when they were in the down. Um, like when Pete, when, when I started working with Pete, it was when he was uh, he was coming back and he wasn't. In, in a very good place. Uh, with Roger, I did the same thing. With Corey, I did the same thing. With Sergio Bulguera, I did the same thing. Um, so, so um, but what people don't realize is that Roger Federer is the second best player on clay in, 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 in these decades, on the last decade, decade and a half. There's only one player that is better than him, which is Rafa. And Rafa is, is, is the best player of all time on clay. So, so, so I, did, I, I mean, I didn't have to really... Uh, Helping that much because he was already that good. But some of the things, for example, that um, that uh, one of the things that I thought maybe he could do a little better on clay because he had a little more time was adjusting his feet on his back a little more. Uh, I thought he got he got caught in no man's land sometimes. Uh, also, um, you know, he uh, never hit a drop set with his forehand side, so that's something that actually uh, he started to implement um, once I started working with him. Um, but but. Once again, not, not really small details, as I said before, uh, because once again, people don't realize in general that, that Roger, besides Rafa, is the best player on play for the last 12 years. Yeah, along with you have to throw Novak in too, no? Or, yeah, uh, yeah, no, Novak also, obviously. But if you look at the, if you look at, uh, I mean, Roger's gone to the finals of the French how many times? Yeah, five. Five, five finals. Yeah, he, he, he lost to who? He lost to Rafa. So, so who beat Rafa in the finals of the French? To, to, to the day, nobody. No, absolutely. So, 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 so obviously, I'm not diminishing Novak in any way. I, I think he's, he's obviously up there also. But if you look at Roger's career, consistently he's been a great clinical player. He is, unfortunately, or fortunately for Rafa, you know, Rafa, Rafa was there. Yeah, that's what I always say. If there was no Nadal, Djokovic and Federer would have won at least five French Open each. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I can argue with you more. So are you surprised that uh, 10 years later, at age 38, Federer is still world number three, still playing, still came within points of winning Wimbledon, still playing this good? Uh, and secondly, uh, what what do you notice about his uh, overall game? What has changed? Well, of course, he doesn't move like he used to, but he still moves pretty good. 
Well, I'm not surprised after I after spending time with him because he, he, his love for the game is unmatched. Uh, so he loves to play tennis. I mean, he actually one of those players that actually likes to hit tennis balls. Um, and together with that, uh, if he can play until he's uh, 55 years old or 60, he he he, he will. So so uh, in terms of his uh, of his game, I think in the last few years he's trying to become more more offensive. I think he ventures to the net uh, more often, which I think. Um, which I think is a great move because he's a very capable volume. And um, and, uh, and I think he's trying to, to show the points a little more. But, but in general, uh, he will play tennis until he can because he, because he loves to play. He loves the lifestyle. And uh, there is nothing about the game that he doesn't like. Any, any memory you want to share? Because a lot of people who would listen the moment they hear your name because they'll come to the podcast. Of course, you know, Federer is very popular. Any favorite memory or any unique memory in that association that you want to hear share with the listeners here? Oh, oh, well, the thing that struck me the most, and, and I'm pretty, I mean, I think people know that, but the thing that struck me the most, I'm not going to discover him as a tennis player because he, uh, once again, everybody knows him as a tennis player. I was lucky enough to be around him for, uh, for, for, for a year. And what uh, struck me was his, uh, his humbleness and his uh, humanity, uh, how he treats people. How he treats everybody. I mean, I, I have some uh, some little things that happened when I was there, and I thought, Jesus, this is unbelievable. So a guy that 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 big on what he does, and and, and the, the the level of detail that he will have with somebody with a ballway, with somebody that helps at the tournament, with a with a, one of the chauffeurs at the at the uh, at transportation. Uh, that was struck me the most, and I think that, I think, uh, and I would actually say that the same thing about about Rafa, to be honest. I think they are two great examples for uh, for, for for the children, and uh, and I, I I mean I know I, I, I would doubt that I will that I will see uh, two players as good as they are, and not only on the tennis court but but off the tennis court. I think it's pretty commendable to be honest. How well do you know Rafa? Again, uh, I should have asked more questions, but we are ending this podcast. Uh, what's your association yeah. with Natal like? Well, Rafa, I've known him since he was uh, 12 years old. I have, I have a great uh, friendship with him. Um, if I see him at tournament, we always take the time to visit for 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 a bit. And uh, absolutely a great guy once again. Uh, talking about being resilient and uh, and being a great champion. But once again, the, but the other thing that I would say the same, that I say about Roger, uh, I've known a lot of great great champions that probably I wouldn't go out for dinner with them. To be honest, I admire their talents on the tennis court, but 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 off the tennis court, I wasn't too big fan of them. Uh, these these two guys are these two guys, uh, you know, said that set themselves apart because of how they are uh, with them on the tennis court and how they treat all the people. And one more thing, uh, Nadal still, you know, and then, you know, 32, Federer's 38, Djokovic. Why has tennis gotten older in the last 10 years? Why are these three players winning again? Again, you know, they're very good. They're, like, probably the three best of all time. But something has changed. Now, Daniel Medvedev is adding his say in the conversation. But what has happened between 2009 and 2019? Why are the same names keep coming up? Well, it's pretty obvious because they're better than the other guys. <laughs> you know, I mean, actually, I, I've had this question asked, asked me a few times, and these guys are not going to let the, the young guys win. The young guys are going to have to beat them. And uh, and the, the reason that they are there is because they're better. And uh, and they have that, that desire and that will uh, to, to keep playing. They love the game, and they're going to play until they can. Um, and and I think uh, we're lucky actually that that uh, because obviously when we, 
when you hit 30, from 30 to 35, if you if you know if the injuries are are, are good with you, uh, I mean it's a great time to 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 play tennis. You are pretty much at a peak of your physical uh, physical abilities. You are you, you have plenty of experience. Uh, if you've had a great career, the financial aspect is not is not a, an issue anymore. So what a great way to actually go there and uh, and, and enjoy doing what you like to do. Hey, Samuel Benzinet, the guy. I mean, right now he's part of the town. Six semifinals in a row. Almost came very close to win the U.S. Open. Is he a guy who can join the conversation, according to you? Uh, I, I think he is. Uh, I, I watch him. Uh, actually, uh, I kind of follow the uh, summer circuit. So I follow tennis quite a bit. But uh, I thought by the time he got to the, to, the, to the U.S. Open, I thought he may be a little tired after all, all his success during the summer. But uh, I couldn't believe the way he was working uh, the week before the, the, the U.S. Open. Uh, I saw him on the gym. I saw him running. And uh, and I have no doubt that the desire is there. And I have no doubt that uh, one of these, one or two of, of these um, young guys, I believe they will win a slam next year. That's my, that's my, that's my uh, uh, at this point, that's my opinion. I, I will be pretty surprised yeah, if we don't have some of these guys winning uh, a grand slam or two next year. All right, so I think I can go on forever, but we promised 45 minutes. I've already gone 10 minutes over. I enjoyed every okay. conversation. Uh, thank you very much, Jose, uh, for thank coming you. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very happy to, uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is the second segment of this week's uh, podcast. Matt Zemek is back, and uh, both tours are heading slowly towards the season finale. Actually, WTA is almost there now. In a week from now, the field is complete at Shenzhen. So let's kick off this conversation, Matt, uh, about the field and how do you stack the eight women who have made there? Who are your favorites? And just in a summarized way, fire away. Yeah, well, thanks, Akiv. I think the main thing to say about this WTA Finals is little different from past WTA Finals. And I have gone into previous WTA Finals, especially the last two years, thinking that certain players were definitely not in a position to win, and then they'd win it, or, or they'd make the final, or at least the semifinal. So, for instance, I thought Alina Svitolina had no chance, basically no chance to win last year. And yet she caught fire and won the whole thing, the last one in Singapore before the move to Shenzhen this year. So, you know, the WTA finals have shown us that what looks like a certain situation on paper, the the reality usually is very different. I mean, we've seen Agnieszka Radvanska uh, and other surprise champions uh, the last few years. Um, we've seen... Uh, Dominika Sibolkova play in a final uh, and, uh, and, and win it. So uh, the, the WTA finals really have thrown a lot of curveballs, and that makes me very reluctant to assign a clear favorite. I would say that the best hardcourt player in the year of the year on the WTA tour is Bianca Andrescu. So you might give her an advantage on that basis alone. But Naomi Osaka looked very good against Andrescu in Beijing. Uh, so that's a, that's a counterbalance. So it, it's going to be fascinating. And I am very excited 
for this group of eight. They're all going to be attractive matchups. I mean, Svitolina is going to be in this tournament, and she hasn't had a great year, and yet she was one of only two players to make two major semifinals in 2019, the other one being Serena Williams, whom she lost to uh, at the U.S. Open. So even one of the uh, quote-unquote lesser players at this tournament made two major semifinals, which is something that almost almost everyone else on the WTA Tour failed to do this year. And Bencic is going to be the eighth and lowest seed. And she had a great year. She rose 48 spots in the rankings from 55 to her current position of, of seven uh, and made a major semifinal, uh, had some, played some of the best tennis anywhere in February when she really got on a roll and she re- returned to prominence. So there really is no weak link at this tournament. I think all eight players can win it. Uh, Past experience informs that opinion, but also just because when you look at the 2019 WTA Tour, we've seen at the biggest tournaments, they don't really carry over one to the next. Uh, Roland Garros didn't carry over much to Wimbledon. Wimbledon didn't carry much into the U.S. Open. So why should we think that the U.S. Open uh, is going to have any relevance to this. You know, maybe people will look at what happened in Beijing and they will say that Naomi Osaka is the favorite. Well, maybe she will carry her form from Beijing to Shenzhen, but history tells us that that generally doesn't happen. So I think it's best to say that uh, there are especially strong arguments to make for Andrescu and Osaka, but fundamentally it's wide open. Let's see it. And, and uh, the other thing, Sakib, to note about this is, you know, we, we keep saying, or at least I keep saying, a few others in, in, in the tennis commentariat are saying this, women's tennis need, needs a rivalry to catch fire. Women's tennis has so many great things going for it. The one conspicuous absence or deficit on, on the WTA Tour, there isn't that rivalry which is going to capture tennis fans' imaginations for the next several years. So whenever we get to the WTA finals, the elite players meeting each other, we hope that one of these matchups will occur, which ignites something and leads to more battles on a sustained basis the following season. You know, we've seen uh, Sloane Stevens, Kiki Bertens, um, other players make the WTA finals recently, but then they wouldn't back it up uh, the following season. So maybe this is the WTA Finals, which leads to a 2020 season, a following season, in which the rivalries on tour begin begin to gain some traction. So you know we're not going to get an answer to this until next year, perhaps in Australia, perhaps in Indian Wells. But it, it is a plot point of this WTA Finals. Will we see here the birth of a new tennis rivalry? I think that's a a very valid point because when Bree was here in the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did talk about the possibility of WTA potentially having its own version of a big three. Of course, big shoes to fill compared to that on the ATP side, but Ash Barty slightly older and then Bianca and Naomi. I think these could be the few marketable and reliable players if they were to engage, you know, in these battles on the biggest courts in the world. And yeah, that could be a site uh, for the WTA. And talking about rivalries, the men's tour could see some of those reignited next year with the return of a certain Andy Murray. Of course, he was uh, playing solid tennis in Asia, 
had a test team match with Fabio Fornini a few weeks ago, uh, but he comes back after you know his biggest challenge. That's we all know is a, a resurfaced hip, and now he wins a tournament at a 250 level, and he had to work hard to get there. Uh, let's talk about you know. Did you see this coming? Uh, I, I was talking in our DMs with Mert and Susie and everyone. I thought, you know, let's uh, give him a full, you know, recovery time and let's judge his form, say, come Indian Wells. If his health allows him, he's going to play at least six or seven tournaments between now and then, and then we'll see where his level is at. But he comes and wins this tournament in a typical Murray fashion. He was down a set. Wawrinka, you know, should have won this match more than a few times. He was clearly the better player. But here we are. Andy Murray is victorious on the ATP Tour after quite some time. Your thoughts on that? And uh, how do you see this as a stepping stone for good things to come Murray's way? Well, as I wrote at TennisAccent.com, it's, it's very easy to use this moment, this achievement, and use it to speculate on what's what the future is going to look like for Murray. I mean, we're and we're all doing that. There's nothing wrong with speculating, but you know, we can do a lot more speculating when we get to Australia in January. And I think the proper point of emphasis right now is just to appreciate the, this triumph uh, and everything that went into it. How Murray was so uh, persistent in fighting back against Fafrinka in that final. He was not only a set and a break down, but he was then down a break in the third twice, and he just kept coming back again and again and again. He punished Favrinka for a very inconsistent first serve. He really made good use of all the second serves he was able to attack from Favrinka's side. So it was such a dogged and resolute victory, and, and so that match in many ways was a microcosm of the fighting spirit that we've seen from Murray to, to stick it out these past two years and not give up on tennis to continue to find a way back into the sport uh, and, and to, to try and restart his career without pain, uh, you know, without significant physical limitation. And so this win gives him a chance to say, first of all, I've done something, you know, I really have been able to create a classic moment that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. He has that, to celebrate, and I think we should all stop and pause to honor that. The other thing is simply that, you know, when he continues on his uh, on his uh, quest to become an elite tennis player again next year, he can point to this match as a very profound occasion when he summoned forth um, a lot of willpower, a lot of concentration, and a lot of good tennis. You know, he played a lot of long matches this past week in Antwerp. So it, the, the Sunday was merely the culmination of a lot of contentious battles, and he was able to win all of them. So it, it's just great to see this actually happen, regardless of what happens in the future. Murray will, will always look back on this moment as a very, very profound and very sweet uh, occasion in his, in his life and in his tennis journey, and that's really special. Uh, indeed it is. And uh, let me just uh, dwell on this a little further and take this conversation uh, as, as purely the tennis fan. And uh, I know we don't do much of this on this podcast, but uh, this definitely makes the, the plot does thicken, in my opinion, Matt. I'm sure you can weigh in. 
uh, with the big three, the dominance uh, they've had. And, you know, of course, Federer didn't win Wimbledon this year, but Novak and Rafa split uh, the four majors. But Federer is still there uh, making finals and semifinals in Roland Garros and Wimbledon. And then there's a next-gen wave of uh, players at who we expect to break through at some point. And, and add a healthy Andy Murray, who starts racking up wins, the draws will have more... Uh, meaning to them. Uh, I'm not saying he's back to that level that he was in 2016, but wherever Murray lands in a best-of-five Grand Slam event, it's it's going to really be quite intriguing because uh, in the past year, the, the theme has been where would Federer land, in Novak's half or Rafa's half, and that pretty much has been, you know, their dominance and to their credit, those matches do live up and those matches do materialize, but uh, sometimes it was very hard for us even while putting an analyst hat just to think beyond those three. But now uh, you have all these other young guys making their move in Asia. There was a preview of a bunch of, you know, of course, one-week tournaments where Dominic Team and Daniel Medvedev, of course, cannot write him off. He's making his own case to be the fourth best player or maybe the best player in the world right now, given the form. So where does a healthy Murray, you know, it's kind of a season preview i'm asking you now we could have done this maybe a few weeks from now but where does a healthy murray in your view if all things stay consistent uh, how how much intrigue does he add to these uh, two-week tournaments well i you know so in terms of you know projecting the future for murray which is obviously a very risky tenuous uncertain thing to do but if but if you're going to ask me that which is fair uh, I think the main thing we have to realize is that we shouldn't expect an instant, immediate uh, renewal of the big four. I, I think that is the main thing. We, sh we just we just can't get ahead of ourselves. You know, it, it, this was a great triumph, and I'm not trying to throw a bucket of cold water on it. But Fafrinka did not play a particularly consistent match. It was he was very hit and miss. His serve was all over the place. His serve was a lot less consistent than it was uh, at Roland Garros uh, and, and during the other times of the year when he won some big-time matches uh, with that serve. You know, Djokovic at the U.S. Open, for instance. That Wawrinka was not getting nearly enough free points on his serve. So the, a starting point with Murray is that when his opponent plays better, better than Wawrinka did in that uh, Antwerp final on Sunday, what is Murray going to do? And we shouldn't expect Murray to be able to take down a really hot opponent who is firing on all cylinders. I mean, a hot opponent, you know, in the top tier of men's tennis. So, so my, my initial set of expectations and, you know, the Australian open is going to re might revise these expectations. But right now my thought process is, you know, he, he just go through the hard court, the winter, uh, and an early spring hard court season with with you know not that that many expectations you know compete well try to make some gains in points and rankings and and find improved form but I think that uh, in, in terms of asking Andy Murray to do a little bit more this season I think that when we get to Madrid and Rome the ramp up to Roland Garros you know Murray became a very formidable clay court player. Uh, as as he gained more experience, uh, that's a tournament where he can do really well. So I think that the latter part of clay season, and then going into grass season, I think that's the ch that that's really the first chance in my mind for Murray to do some real damage. Now you know if his rankings are 
let's say, in the 50s, you know, he might have to play Djokovic or Nadal in the second round. It would stink, but that's a real possibility. But, you know, if he gets a, a particular draw, which enables him to do some damage, you know, maybe he can make a run. Maybe he can then get his ranking up quickly enough uh, to do something. But I really don't think we should expect anything particularly substantial from Murray through the hard court season. This doesn't mean he's not capable of it. Uh, he certainly could be, but I just think we shouldn't expect that. And we should allow this, uh, this revival to occur uh, on, a, on a more extended time frame uh, and not assign too many expectations. And I think that you know the, the quality of the draws that he gets in his lower ranking, you know, he's at 127 right now, Let's let's see how that situation evolves, uh, and if he gets you know the right kind of opening, uh, which can, will enable him to make a run, post a big result, push himself up in the rankings, then we can have a revised discussion on what's possible for Andy Murray. Yeah, I mean, uh, my my question was again uh, more of a caveat of uh, all things you know stay to form, and Murray does regain health and fitness and some momentum. But you're right. Uh, he, 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 he can be a factor because uh, in his last few years when he was healthy, he was, he's become a really good clay player, clay court player. And I think that's a time period you're giving him actually three more months than I am. So yeah, let's see the Madrid Rome time, what his game is at and how much ranking points he's accumulated. Is he close to being, you know, a seed? Is he close to being a top 50 player? So those are very valid scenarios. But I think his presence in the draw in best of five format, even in Australia, is quite early. I think uh, you name any player not ranked uh, besides those big three guys and Daniel Medvedev. And uh, if Murray is healthy, maybe Dominic Team. I, I, I don't see many players uh, in an early first week contest. I would fancy Murray. Uh, but again, this is this all can could could come crashing if Murray serves not working and you know he's still lacking match play. But uh, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of body work he's created. That even uh, in this year's almost season-ending podcast, I want to take the opportunity to see what value he's going to add to the draws. Of course, there are a lot of ifs and uh, a lot of caveats that have to be thrown in, given his form, given his ranking, given how how, how matched tough he is. But yeah. This is a good stepping stone in my view. So any concluding part, Matt, before we wrap the show uh, yeah, for this week? And that, yeah, and the simple note is that, that you know, the, the ATP Cup, that, that event in Australia leading into the Australian Open, that's an entirely new thing. And nobody knows how that event might potentially reframe, recalibrate uh, any of our expectations for the Australian Open, how it might change the players. You know, Labor Cup, you know, one of these new cups, one of these new, unique, uh, off-the-beaten-path kind of events, Labor Cup very clearly reset the season for Zverev and, to a lesser degree, uh, Tsitsipas. So none of us knows how this ATP Cup uh, is going to change the equation for Australia. So that's yet one more wild card element as we consider what the future holds for Andy Murray and really everybody else. Um, it's it's so up for grabs and uh, it's why I'm already excited about the 2020 season.